0: I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm coming to you with not one, but two end-of-year bonus episodes of the podcast to help us remember and celebrate the incredible guests you've had on the show in 2021. This year has been another year for the books, the history books, that is. It truly feels like we're living in historic times. And in these historic times, we're all experiencing our own versions of fear, uncertainty, grief, apathy, languishing, and numbness. But we're also, in our own ways, trying to find ways to survive, maybe even thrive in our relationships, our passion projects, our work, and the things that bring us joy and meaning. Here on the podcast, we made the intentional choice at the beginning of the year to host conversations with people who we felt offered us hope. Changemakers and world changers who through the way that they live and lead their lives are showing us what hope looks like in practice. That hope is action meeting purpose and infused with ancestral wisdom. And that's why as we close off this year, we wanted to bring you a short recap of all 19 episodes that we recorded this year with incredible guests like Susanna Barkataki. Kylie Reed, Michaela Loach, Diego Perez, Emma Dabiri, Valerie Kaur, and many, many more. In this bonus episode and the next one, you'll get a chance to either remember some of the wonderful conversations we've had this year or get to hear them for the first time, in which case, we really invite you to listen in to our past episodes. As we wind down for the year, we want to say a huge thank you to our patrons on Patreon who have supported the work that we do in curating this powerful podcast series and our interactive book club. A huge thank you to our guests without whom this podcast wouldn't exist and without whom some of the world's best books wouldn't exist either. And a huge thank you to you, our listener, for taking the time to listen in and spend time with us. My mother always says that the one thing you can't give anyone back is their time. And that when someone chooses to spend their time with you, it's always an honor. So thank you, dear listener, for spending your time with us this year. We look forward to returning in February with some brand new episodes with incredible Black authors and authors of color who are changing the world with their words. And now, Let's get into the episode. Our first guest of the year in January 2021 for episode 41 was author and yoga practitioner Susanna Barkataki. Susanna is the author of the book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice, and the founder of the Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute. You can find out more about Susanna's work at susannabarkataki.com. Yeah. So tell us about how growing up and now the woman that you are, these different heritages that you draw from, you know, really influenced you and the woman that you are.
1: That's a lovely question. And I often remember a time where I was like, I'm a citizen of the world. And I said it, but I didn't feel it. I didn't actually feel like I belonged anywhere. I felt like I belonged nowhere. Mm. And it's because. I was born, as you say, of mixed heritage, and my mother's parents and family didn't want them to have children, certainly didn't want her to marry an Indian person. And my father's parents felt the same way. They wanted to have an arranged marriage to an Indian woman. And so, despite that, when I came into the world, it was a world that it didn't accept who I was or couldn't even hold what I was. And so because of that, we and I experienced a lot of violence in the UK. And that was what really forced our transition, our move. I think of it in a way kind of like we were political or like race refugees. We really needed to leave the UK at that time. Yeah. We lived in Middlesbrough, which was a smaller kind of a... a it was a lot of violence against mixed race families and Indian, Pakistani, African, you know, Black families there. So we left. We were lucky to leave. But what I didn't realize uh, and what we only would later come to find out is we went out of the frying pan into the fire, as they say. So I grew up, you know, being called Dothead in Los Angeles, one of the most diverse areas that I can think of in the world, uh, being called terrorists being told to go home and physically having to fight. So folks who can't see me, like you're just hearing my voice, my voice sounds sweet. I'm really little. I'm like five foot one and I am sweet, but I'm also super tough. And I learned how to be tough because I had to, I had to fight for my survival and all of that shaped me. And even though I was fighting on the outside those words went in. So though I was sticking up for myself externally, internally, I felt less than, I felt unworthy. I felt, you know, like I wasn't valuable. And so when I think about what brought me to do the work that I do, you know, it was like, I was so divided inside myself. And, you know, maybe folks can relate to this. I think many of us have different stories of not belonging Yeah, and yours might be different than mine, but we all feel unworthy in some way or another. And mine was, was all of this. It was external forces, but also internal. And so I turned to yoga as a, really a path of reclamation. It was like, very thing I am being made fun of for parts of my culture, Ayurveda, you know, the spiritual practices, I'm going to go right into that and learn that fully. And I didn't know that it would also be the thing that would help me reconnect my mind, my heart, my soul, and, and truly feel Now I can say I'm a citizen of the world. You know, I do Mm. feel like I belong everywhere that I am. Everywhere I go and lay my head is home. Now I'm in Orlando, Florida, Seminole land, somewhere I never thought I would be. And I'm very grateful for even the, the feelings and the moments and the experiences of separation because it's led me to a place where both inside and outside. I feel like I I do belong and I am welcome. And because of that, because of that inner unity, I'm able to share that with others as well.
0: That wonderful conversation with Susanna in January was followed up by our next conversation for episode 42 with author and minimalist, Christine Platt. Christine is the author of several books, including her 2021 book, The afro Minimalist Guide, to living with less. You can find out more about Christine at afrominimalist.com. Can you give us an example of one of the stories that you wrote about that isn't talked about, isn't something that we are aware of, or isn't mainstream? Let's see, there are so many. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wrote about the German Coast Uprising, which happened, I believe, in 1811, which was one of the largest slave revolts and uprisings to take place in the united states but one of the revolts that we hear about the most is nat turner right Mm -hmm. and so i knew i wanted to write about a slave revolt but i was like obviously i can't write about nat turner because that's on this list of stories that we've heard a million times and came across the german coast uprising And I feel like that was also one of the chapters where that story was given to me. Mm. And so when I do the research, especially when I'm in the 1800s, 17, well, can't really go back on microfiche to the 1700s, but sometimes there's some data there. But I was looking at microfiche and I was able to find all the names of some of the enslaved people who were actually murdered as part of this revolt. Wow. And so one of, <laughs> yeah, one of those names was Petit Lindor. And I said, I'm going to tell Petit's story. And I didn't even have to look up Petit. And the story that he wanted me to tell is something that would have never been in writing anyway, which was his love for another enslaved woman and how they had feared running away before and how he felt just in that brief moment during that slave revolt, what it felt like to be free. And Mm. that even though he knew he was going to die, it was worth that brief moment of freedom. I still get chills when I think about it. And, you know, I think what is even more powerful is that, you know, I independently published that book and went on with my life. (laughs) Right. Yeah, waiting for memos from Barack Obama. Right. And I just remember like my friend's, were written. They would, you know. I'd get these messages, and they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, this book is amazing!" And I would be like, "Really? You think so? You know?" And it's your friends, right? <laughs> That's what they're <laughs> just supposed hyping to say, you up. right? right.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wanted to believe them, and then I started hearing from strangers, and then I started hearing from professors. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the book just—again, they were waiting for me to tell these stories, and so the book just took on a life of its own. Awiti is a very stubborn protagonist. She is still around and still leaving her mark and and teaching history. Right. Yeah,
0: and that's the book that got me my agent. Amazing. I love this story. And yeah, one of the things that I was really struck by as I was reading about, you know, Awiti is how it's used in schools. And I was like, look at this good ancestor who channeled this book <laughs> and it is will continue to have this life beyond the life it had with you.
2: It is amazing, Layla. And as you know, I've been doing anti-racism work for a long time. I've seen it change its name so many times. Anti-Black, this DEI. Now everyone's, you know, stuck on the anti-racism. And like one of the things that I have learned is that my lane is bringing about social change through storytelling. I have this big thing about storytelling as a tool for social change. And it's one of the reasons why I love your work so much. I feel like you're a natural storyteller. And writing about this work isn't easy. Trying to Mm. change hearts and minds through this work isn't easy. And for me, I've found that literature is more effective than any position I can hold at an anti-racism center, any workshop I can give, any training, like for me, that is my lane is using the power of storytelling to bring about social change. And so when I hear from college students or even like, I remember hearing from like an 80 something year old white woman who I don't even know how she found me on Facebook. Cause as you know, like once you start, you know, you don't plan for your life to all of a sudden become right. so public. And then you're like, Oh my God, I want to hide. Right. So I had like all these restrictions, <laughs> <laughs> like, how did they find me under CP Patrick? But anyway, <laughs> she had sent me just this most beautiful note about how she learned so much about history reading this novel. And because each chapter is told in a different voice and from a different perspective, you're not just hearing like this right. one character's journey, right? Like you're able to really get an expansive view and historical overview of the transatlantic slave trade. And there, you know, at the time, there was really nothing like that for educators to use, especially college educators. Yeah.
0: Our final episode in January was episode 43, where we talked to the New York Times bestselling author, Kylie Reed. Kylie is the author of the fictional debut, Such a Fun Age, one of my favorite books of 2020, which was long listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. Find out more about Kylie at kyliereid.com. I'm so glad. Code switching is a real skill that we have to develop. And I'm thinking about what you were saying about, I think in another interview, you were talking about this is also like one of the oldest stories of time, which is Black women being domestic care workers for white women's children. And it was the same then, right? Of when you're caring for the child and you're in your employer's place, whether they were paying you or not, you had to be one type of person. And then when you go home with your own family, you're a different type of person. What do you think that does? Because we can talk about how it's a skill, right? And it's a really, it's a cool skill to have, but it also is doing something to us.
3: That's a great question. It's 100% doing something. And I'll tell you, there's a little interaction that I had that just reminds me of. I think, you know, I used to be a nanny for a long time. Mm. And I was, with a little girl for four years. I was very close to her family, but in the beginning, I think she was going three years old and we spent a lot of time just one-on-one, just the two of us. And we would play this little like pillow fighting game. This is so silly, but she loved it. <laughs> <laughs> pillow fighting game where, you know, I would say to her, come on girl, what's up? What you got, what you got? And she would hit me with the pillow and I would fall over and she thought it was hilarious, okay? So that was just our little game that we would play in private. Mm-hmm. I take this girl to a play date And I hear her playing a pillow fight game with her friends. She's white. And she says to her friends, come on, girl, what you got? What you got? And I heard it. I I thought her parents are going to hear her talking like that. And they're going to say, what is that? Where did you learn that? And they're going to get mad at me. Mm. And when I think about that, that is heartbreaking because that is me at my best. Playing with your child. She's safe. We're having a good time. I'm making her laugh but I think it's also a familiar feeling of a lot of black women of, well, oh, I got too comfortable a little bit. I need to make sure that my language is something that these parents are going to be okay with hearing their child say to their friends. And so I don't think that that's a good, healthy reaction. I don't know no. sociological you know, place what that's doing to me, but I think that division is, is harmful, especially when it comes to domestic work Part of your job is loving someone and you can love someone better when you're really comfortable. Yeah. And I, I remember that moment of feeling like, okay, you got too comfortable. You have to be cool. You can't talk to her like that. It
0: was really sad. Right. You know, we're not talking about how we have to show up at work professionally. This is not about that. This is yeah. about actually masking who you are, right? This is about being afraid that who you are is dangerous to other people and will be judged in an inferior way. I often think about the amount of energy it takes, you know, that we expend to categorize ourselves in this way for our own safety and just not having to deal with white supremacy, right? Not having to deal with all the stuff, but where does that energy go and what can we do with It's just something that I think about a lot. And And I think about Amira as she is, in her early twenties. So she's in that mm-hmm. part of her life. I was a, I was such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people
3: at book, at book readings be like, can you give me advice? I'm like, no. <laughs> I, don't I get it now, Right, yeah, she's in a hard place for she's sure. She's in a
0: hard place. And yeah. what was interesting for me with her was that, you know, I'm somebody who It took me a while to figure out what I was doing, but I always knew that there was something, right? I always knew that there was something that I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be helping people in some way. It just took me a while to figure out what that was. With Amira, what's really interesting is that she's still figuring it out, right? There's nothing that's really tugging or pulling at her in that way. And I think I noticed as I was reading, I noticed my own frustration with it
1: like, what
3: is it that you want to be doing? You know? Yes, I think that we are conditioned to want her to be better in systems that weren't made
0: for her. Oh, and yes.
3: It's so easy to say, Amira, like, you should be able to just have this job for the rest of your life, but I'm letting you know about the systems that we live in and you're going to want health You know what I mean? Yes. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in that and say, Amira, like, I need you to do this. And it's so easy to point at her instead of like this is weird. Why doesn't she just have healthcare? Like, right. <laughs> like she right. being, and she should just be able to go to the doctor, you know, whenever she wants. And I also, like you, like I knew I wanted to write. And so it was easier for me at the end of a hard day where I was like, okay, I can pay my rent. I can keep writing. It's fine. But I do think that there are many 25 year olds like this who were like, I don't really know what I'm trying to do. And I feel like there were so many jobs that I didn't even know existed until I was 28, 29. And now that I'm 33, it seems a little crazy to me that like you turn 18 in the States and they're like, pick a major, do that.
0: Just do that for the rest of your life. In February, we published episode 44 with Nels Abbey, the British Nigerian media executive, writer and satirist. Nels is the author of the painfully hilarious book, Think Like a White Man, a satirical guide to conquering the world while black. Nels can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Nels Abbey. Let's talk about your book, Think Like a White Man, which I was reading it and I was just like, this book operates at so many different levels. So before we dive into it, can you give people an overview about what the book is about and who it's written by and who it's written for?
4: yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Think Like a White Man is a satirical self-help book on being a black person in the professional world. That's the metaphor it is written in. In reality, mm-hmm. it's just about being a black person in, in Western societies and having to navigate white supremacy. The book is written by a gentleman called Dr. White Whitelaw III, who holds himself out as the world's leading expert on white people, or a white theologist as he calls himself. And he's got a PhD in white people studies. And he's basically this compendium of knowledge and racial rhetoric of white people, which often sounds insane until you realise that actually it is very, very sane. And the reality is that it might sound funny, but what he's saying is actually how things really happen. So he says the unsayable right. things. So, yeah, so... Going, running along with the mess and with the joke this gentleman contacted me out of the blue and wanted me to write this book with him and I was stupid enough to get sucked into it and here we are today <laughs> yeah <laughs> we had all the trouble sports, but there we go
0: so as a fictional character yeah. What did Dr. Boulay give you the creative expression to say or write about that you might not necessarily have done as Nell's
4: Abbey? Everything. I wouldn't have done any of this as <laughs> Nell's Abbey. I wouldn't have done any of this. I could. There's no way. I mean, so I operate. So in terms of my nine to fives or so, like working or so, I was a banker for a very, very long time, and I worked my way up to a very senior level in banking, pretty fairly quickly by by banking standards. Particularly if someone comes my sort of background, black working class. Then I moved mm. into media and I worked at a seniorish level, yeah, but a good level over there too. So, and it's kind of funny. So, I worked in predominantly white careers, very, very mm. white. And even though media likes to pose as liberal, there's nothing probable about it. Media is much more conservative than banking is by a country mile. Media really? is. Really? Yes, it is. Yeah. The yeah, banking they at least hire people. Banking at least hires right. black people. Or so media, I was kind of shocked when I when I left banking and joined media. So banking, we always thought, oh my goodness, there's not enough black people here, not enough brown people, anybody else. But when I joined media, I realised actually these guys are stuck somewhere in the fifties. This is crazy. So when I went to, I'd pop into senior editorial meetings, for example, and yeah, they'll be all white right men. Right. And right. so it was very. And so when you think of that, that. This was the people conveying information to society. These are the people who are telling you this is what you need to know today in order to understand how our society is working. And it was just one demographic. Yeah. And it was, very, it was quite scary. So, yeah, so walking in there was quite scary, yeah, in that situation. And when you walk around, and it wasn't just one editorial meeting or two or three. If you go around all of them, the majority of them, particularly at the senior level, there was no diversity. Well, there was barely any diversity at all whatsoever and it right. makes matters even worse where there was diversity and it's something that I alluded to in the book, it was often people who were very likely to agree with that world of view already. Mm. So when people speak of diversity of thought, that's actually the polar opposite. What people want is is people who are going to think like them also to come around the table and be with them. And so hence why I think like White men that the yes men rule the world, the people who want mm-hmm. to hear people who think like them and agree with them. The relative matter, and I, and I really believe that. I don't think that as much as people think that. Yeah, your job is to come and disagree with me and tell me how I'm doing this wrong. No, everybody just wants to be told that look, your breath smells like perfume and the sun shines out of your forehead and everything else. Right. It doesn't work like that. So yeah, people like confirmation bias. I think is the term. People like to be reaffirmed that their views are always right and are the prevailing views, and that's how it becomes. Right. Yeah. But pre-social media, I think of it. Yeah, pre-social media, there was no pushback whatsoever. It was just the news was the news was the news. they it was just white men dictating what was going
0: on. Our second episode for February was with Sunikiwe Diliwayo in episode 45. Sunikiwe is a creative, an entrepreneur, an educator, and a speaker. She's the founder of NAYA, a well-being company that lies at the intersection of social justice and wellness. Through her work, Sunikiwe is redefining what it looks and feels like to be well, by centering bodies of culture, those that are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Find out more about Tsunikwe's work at NayaWellness.com and Sdiliweo.com. You mentioned, so you're from Zimbabwe, the language that is spoken in your family is Shona, and Shona is the language that you use to name your company, which is called Naya, which means healing in Shona. Tell us about Naya and what he sparked it and what, what its aims are.
5: Sure. So just a bit of my own history, I worked in the magazine publishing industry for 10 years. In addition to that, I'm a certified yoga instructor and also a meditation instructor. And so often being in these spaces, just what I felt was that the picture of well-being always happened to be white, always happened to be affluent generally, and always happened to be able-bodied. And it was just really frustrating to me for the past four years, primarily I worked for a fitness title. And with that, it was like every month I was just working on stories for white men. Mm. And it was just so unsatisfying. Even when we did share stories of non-white people, it was never just a story of triumph. It was always like, oh, this person, you know, was in jail and they left jail and now they're doing this thing in the fitness world, right? It was never just like, this person is great. Like this person is awesome. They're doing awesome things in the world. Like you should support them. And so it was just very frustrating to be like, why can't I tell the stories of Black folks and non-Black people of color that don't necessarily involve our pain.
1: Mm.
5: And then also as a visual editor, a photo editor. It was also frustrating to, you know, even when we did show photos or videos of people who weren't white, it was always like through this gaze of whiteness. And we know how problematic that can be, especially with white supremacy and racism um, Mm -hmm. and anti-blackness. And so with Naya, my intention initially, I thought I was going to start a yoga studio, but I live in New York City. I don't come from wealth. and doing anything in terms of having property in New York is so expensive. I also managed a yoga studio as well and just kind of got disillusioned by one, just like the people frequenting those spaces and Mm -hmm. how entitled they were in those spaces and also how disconnected they so often were from the practice of yoga and yoga philosophy. And that yoga isn't just The physical movement, right, that we practice. It's also self inquiry and it's also social justice is part of it. And yeah, so having kind of all of those experiences just kind of culminated into me creating a company. As you said, Naya means healing and just really centering all of the things that are kind of, I don't want to say stacked against us, but I can't just talk about, you know, love and light and smoothies and all of that when another black man was killed Mm. just this weekend a 23 year old black man was killed and he was holding a sandwich from subway you know what i mean like it felt just very disingenuous not to include all of those other things into this narrative of what it means to be well when you don't occupy a white body Mm. and so i would say that naya is yeah it's like just an amalgamation of all of those experiences and one thing for me that has been really prevalent especially this summer is working with a lot of young people so as of last week i'm really excited i was able to give 50 computers to young folks in brooklyn just to enable them to distance learn which just it feels just so good because people just don't even understand that like students not being able to physically go to school, that puts an additional stress on students that don't even have access to technology like computers or Wi-Fi. It's like that pushes them further back in their capacity to learn, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that for me, it's really important to include all of these things in the conversation of wellness. I don't think it can just be very single-minded. And I also think that wellness, the way that it's set up in the West is very individualistic. And I think it community for me is a very, very big focus. It's like the things, even just what you were saying about people kind of like vouching for me and saying that I'm good people. It's like, yeah, I want to be in community with good people. That's how we get things done. Mm. And it's just so important. And I think it's often lacking from a lot of these, like, heavily centered, like white centered and white owned wellness brands.
0: Our third February episode was episode 46 with award-winning science journalist and broadcaster, Angela Saini. Angela is the author of several books, including Superior, The Return of Race Science, which we talked about at length during this episode. Find out more about Angela at angelasaini.co.uk let's switch gears a little bit because we started off this conversation talking about ancestors and ancestry companies <laughs> and they can analyze your dna and and find out where in the world you're from or how much percentage of what place you are i know this is something that really took off over the last few years because i know where my family are from you know, I I remember when my grandmother was still alive, I remember she told me, oh, my grandmother was a Iranian. And I was like, that's odd. You know, we don't, <laughs> we're, not, <laughs> we're not Iranian, right? And when I, as I've been writing the Young Readers edition, I called both of my parents and asked them, you know, which other countries do you know that we have heritage from? And they sort of listed some for me. And they said, we think this and we think that, but we're not exactly sure. And as I was getting those sort of countries and places down, I really thought, well, how important is it actually? Because it doesn't directly influence what I know about me now. And so how important is it for me to know, you know, how much are we Iranian or from Yemen or from these other places? But I know that there are people who don't have as much knowledge about their ancestry. Those who are the descendants of enslaved Africans who don't know where in Africa their family are actually from are hungry for that information. And I think that I completely understand. And I know if I were in that place, I would be looking for that too. And yet those tests don't actually give us the accurate answers that we think that they are giving us is what I understand from your book. So can you talk to us a little bit about those companies, those tests and what we need to be aware of?
6: I completely understand what you mean when you say that if you know your family history, if you can go back a number of generations and be able to say, I have cultural roots in this place and I can go there and I can feel connected to this place, that's a wonderful thing to have. Mm-hmm. And it's so important, I think, for us as humans to feel that. I think it's an important part of how we build our sense of self-identity. And I also am fortunate in having that history. I can very easily trace my family back i know exactly where they have lived for generations in fact my father's family still live in the village where they've lived for generations and you know there's a long history there if you don't have that then i think it is is easy to feel as though there's a part of you missing especially when we and perhaps we've always felt this way but we as humans place such importance on ancestry you know, yes. we really care about who you are, where you're from. This is why we invest so much still in the idea of aristocracy. <laughs> you know, this idea of lineage, it means something to us. Yes. The problem is these ancestry tests, as much as they may give the illusion of giving you something back that you have lost, all they can really do is tell you what you genetically have loosely in common with living people today. So they're not finding some genetic signature in the past that connects you to the past they're finding genetics and signatures in the present that connect you to the present so for example if let's just say everybody on the planet were to have a dna test mm. then my dna were to be compared to everybody on the planet you would find my family all over the world, you know, in America, right across Europe, in India, everywhere. So you wouldn't be able to pin me down to one geographical place. And that's also one of the issues when it comes to African-American ancestry tests, is that they're comparing that person's DNA to people who are living, who could have moved all over the place. You know, there are many people, for instance, In the 19th century, because of after emancipation, there was this huge drive among many white Americans, including leaders, American leaders, to have people repatriated to Africa as though possible, as though they didn't belong in America. Right,
0: because it was the idea, I think, that we can't have free black people living with us in our society, right? It's such an affront. Yeah, because how would we cope with that? (laughs) Right. Our final episode for February, episode 47, was with climate justice and anti-racism activist Michaela Loach. Michaela is also the co-host of the Yikes podcast, a writer and a fourth-year medical student based in Edinburgh, Scotland. Follow Michaela on Instagram at Michaela Loach. So tell us about your journey.
7: Yeah, so I think that a lot of me starting to care really deeply about issues and wanting to do something about it. I definitely think it came from my parents encouraging me to kind of be who I am, if that makes sense. So my dad, especially, I remember from a really young age, I'd watched loads of, I think I'd happened to have watched loads of documentaries about Jamaican history, especially about the slave rights in Jamaica and and Nanny of the Maroons and all these different kind of people who would rise up against oppression. I remember watching these things and I think I turned to my dad and I was like, can I also do stuff like that now? Like there's injustice that's happening now. Like, what can I do about it? And he was just like, you can do anything that you want to. Like you should do anything that you want oh. to. And you should. And I was like, okay, I guess I have to wait until I'm 18. And he was like, why would you wait? Like you can do things now. What do you see in front of you that is a problem? And what, and what could you do about it now? And I think he always, and I spent both my parents actually always never, well, they never made out to me that there was a limit to how much we could do or how much that we could care or how much, or that we had to be a certain age in order to take action on an issue. So, like, for example, when I wanted to go to Calais to volunteer, when I saw on the news about the refugee crisis, I say refugee crisis in quotation marks because it's a crisis of empathy rather than the individuals themselves and not the crisis. But when I saw that on the news, the first thing that, like, people that I'd interacted with most would be probably my parents, especially growing up, and they'd just be like, hey, so what do you want to do about it? Like, do you want to go? And if you want to go, like, how are you going to make that happen? And they'd be the ones who kind of were constantly encouraging me to, act on these things, they themselves would definitely not identify as activists or don't do this I was going to ask, like, yeah, they no. have an activist past? Or yeah. Right. Wow. That's what's quite funny about this because I think a lot of the other people I know, so I see myself as like a, a late bloomer as this stuff more because now I'm surrounded by a lot of people who their parents took them to marches when they were super young and they've been part of all this stuff for so long. Whereas like my mum is a computer scientist and my dad works in finance and stuff. Like they're both very like professional people who have not been involved in activism or protests or things like that. Actually, we as a family went to our first protest as a family and um, to the Black Lives Matter protest in London in the summer during the pandemic. And that was a really moving moment because it was my little brother, my mom, and my dad and all of us together. And they were like, we're glad that we can be part of your life in this way. Wow. And it was really kind of a moving thing. But I do think that like it was just more like I'd see something on the news, my parents and I'd say like oh I, and I'd be really moved by it, and then they'd just kind of be like so what are you going to do about it? And that would be whether I was six years old and did a bake sale at school to raise money for um, a natural disaster that had happened, or whether it was a different time in my life when I was at school and I'd give speeches and be labelled as this weirdo who, <laughs> who cared too much about stuff. It was all these different things, but I definitely think it was my parents who encouraged me a lot and didn't restrict me and just kind of let me be who I was. Yeah, because I think at school, all of us are kind of taught that oppression is something of the past. And thankfully everyone else fought these battles and won them for us and we don't need to do anything. Right. But I think I was just very aware of how that was just not true and how there was still there were still things that we could fight for now. And yeah, I think it's a mix of things. Of There was a time in my life when I was quite young that I remember it was really strange. I don't think I've talked about this before, but I felt weirdly almost guilty that other people had had to fight these fights for black liberation before me and that I was able to experience many freedoms now like I felt I remember being quite young and feeling really genuinely guilty about it because I was like I haven't done anything to deserve the space where I'm in now wow. and then I think I reflected a lot and I was like one you don't have to deserve freedom and and happiness Like that shouldn't be something that you have to fight for but two there are still things you can fight for now and you can be part of liberation still and that can be a beautiful kind of I think of it as this like kind of history of passing down struggle and liberation and fighting for that together and that's almost this like generational beautiful thing that you can do Mm. so yeah I think it's like it's been a mix of things but I do think that my parents why them that they themselves are not activists and why they have not don't really go to marches and things like that yeah Our first
0: episode for March was an exciting one. Episode 48 was with Robert Jones Jr., New York Times bestselling author of the stunning debut, The Prophets, which also happened to be our very first book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club, which launched this year. Getting to read The Prophets and talk about it with Robert on the podcast was an incredible honor, but getting to read his book in community with our book club members and host a private book member's only event with him at the end of that month, was beyond amazing. I'm eternally grateful to Robert for his graciousness and generosity in helping us kick off the Good Ancestor Book Club in such an incredible way. You can follow Robert's work at Son of Baldwin on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. was oh, so beautiful. And it's so reflective of the energy that is in the prophets which I want to dive into in a little while. But I want to start this conversation with your journey. You are known as being the founder, the creator of the community called Son of Baldwin. And I think for many of us, I know for myself, I knew the name Son of Baldwin, didn't necessarily know the name Robert Jones Jr. because you sort of had created this amazing community that represented more than yourself as an individual. Can you tell us about that community, how it started, and what your intention was behind there and sort of the influence of James Baldwin.
8: Absolutely. I was introduced to James Baldwin rather late in my life. I was one of those returning college students. So I went back to college as an adult to pursue my passion, which is writing. So I was about 31 years old when I restarted as a freshman in college. And that was when I was introduced to James Baldwin. I was taking a course called People, Power, and Politics. And one of the assignments was to read an essay by James Baldwin called Here Be Dragons. And I had heard the name James Baldwin growing up, but I didn't really know anything about him, really. My education in the United States, there's no emphasis on Black politicians or or Black authors or Black artists. It's mostly white people that we learn about. So I didn't learn much about James Baldwin. But I read this essay as a freshman and I was utterly blown away by the sheer brilliance and wisdom just contained in these few pages. So I went and started searching everything I could find about James Baldwin and discovered he was Black, he was queer, he lived in New York City, And he was a writer. All of the things that I wanted to be or that I was.
0: And what was that moment like for you in having that sort of recognition of, like, this is me. This is who I am.
8: It was almost like finding a religion. It was a spiritual experience. Like, I felt confirmed Mm. as a human being because, you know, you grow up as a Black queer person thinking that you're invalid, that you're somehow an aberration or you're sinful. And then you discover through somebody like James Baldwin, that you belong, that you are part of the human landscape. And in such a way that's so beautiful and brilliant, he wrote so beautifully and so brilliantly that you're just overcome with emotion. And I immediately adopted him as my spiritual godfather. I was devastated to learn that he had passed on because I was hoping he was still alive because I wanted to meet him and talk to him but discovered that he had passed on in 1987, I believe it was. And I went and devoured everything I could find by him and was struck because this was like 2002 by how he was not part of the cultural conversation, that he wasn't a bigger name, that people weren't talking about his work as much. And I said, why, why he's so smart and so important? And I watched a documentary about him on PBS, where toward the end of the documentary, his brother talked about some of his last words before he passed on. And one of the things he said that was like a gut punch was that James said, I hope that they find me in the wreckage. Wow. And I thought, yes, we have to dig in this wreckage and find him. So I am going to do something about this. I'm gonna start a blog where we discuss James Baldwin and all of the subjects that he touched upon, race and gender and gender identity and sexuality and whiteness and love. And we are going to bring these subjects to the forefront in a way that he would have through his lens Mm -hmm. as a black queer man living abroad and from the United States. And in about 2007, 2008, I started on Blogspot, a blog entitled Son of Baldwin.
0: Well, it's wild to think how young the internet is, right? Our next episode for March was with Dr. Rocio Rosales Meza in episode 49. Dr. Rosales is a Chicana medicine woman and decolonial healer whose work is at the intersections of decolonizing Spirituality and wellness. She often describes herself as too decolonial for the spiritual world and too spiritual for the decolonial world, but I think she's a perfect blend of both. Find out more about her work at drrosalismeza.com.
9: So for me, how I got here, (laughs) it feels like such a big question. So my work now is what I say to decolonizing your mind, to liberate your spirit. And so really it's unlearning the colonial programming that sort of has kept, and I specifically work with black indigenous women and femmes of color, the colonial programming that has kept them in a prison the colonial programming that has kept them small, that has kept them almost oppressing themselves without them even knowing it. Right. And it's also this, what I think I want folks to understand is that colonization happens right at the macro level. I think people get that, right? Yeah. But it's also at the micro level. And this is the most insidious piece of like folks don't realize how maybe limited their world is mm. according to this almost like agreed upon reality. It's a way of seeing the world that from a spiritual metaphysical lens is really not the only reality, right? And is actually not the highest reality.
0: Oh, yes. yeah. I love that you said that because that's, I mean, that's what white supremacy tells us, right? That that's the reality that we're supposed to strive towards and in striving towards it and attaining it, whatever that means, that we reach a state of perfection, that we reach a state of being completely valid. Now we are worthy, right? Now we deserve yeah. all of these things. So I love that you said that.
9: Yes. And so I think this is like, I say lifelong work mm-hmm. and It's an unlearning and I really believe that it's the work of our generation to really be freed from this. And I don't know that I'm going to see the most benefits in my lifetime, but I know that it's something that I like, I cannot not do. I've honestly tried to like, I don't want to do this work. And I think you, I've heard you speak about this sometimes because the work is hard. Yeah. I've tried not to do it, but it keeps calling me back. And honestly, I also know that I wouldn't be happy if I wouldn't be doing it. It's in my soul, this work.
0: And that's the thing about a calling, right? That it's not necessarily that you hear that calling and... First of all, that you answer it immediately. A lot of times we are like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that uh, It's yes. too hard, right? And we start doing it and we're like, yep, it's really hard. Very, very hard. Yes. I don't know that I want to do it. But I think sometimes we confuse like finding your calling to reaching like some state of bliss where every day you, you know, show up for the yes. work and it's easy and you love it every day, you know, and it's, it's not like
9: that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the programming too, right? Like the carrot that they dangle in front of you of like, you will always be happy or you're going to get all these material things and all this money. And it really is about service. And it really is about what is the way that you can use your gifts Mm. in a way that really serves humanity and humanity now, but humanity in the future as well. And so sometimes that's not going to feel good and it's going to be uncomfortable. And and that's all part of the journey. That's what even reveals our own gifts. If we were in a constant state of happiness, I don't know that 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 would even bring us ourselves as the people doing the work to our gifts, right? To our talents, to our highest level of, of being.
0: For our final recap for this first bonus episode, we listen in to this wonderful conversation, episode 50, with Diego Perez, more popularly known as Young Pueblo. Diego is a meditator, writer, and speaker. whose work under the pen name, Young Pueblo, is known and loved around the world. Diego is the author of the books, Inward and Clarity and Connection. Follow Diego at Young underscore Pueblo on Instagram. So in doing that work, is compassion something that has come up to the fore for you? And how has it changed the way that you are in relationship with yourself and the way you are in relationship with other people?
10: Yeah, compassion has been huge. I think one thing that I try to practice really often is if I'm in a close relationship with someone, you know, one of my like close friends or family members, and if there's a need to tell them, you know, a hard truth, like first I would examine myself, like, is this coming from a a good place or is it coming from like my inner tension that's seeking to project something? Am I trying to control them in some way? Or is there something that, that I actually need to tell them versus just like wanting to tell them out of my own craving? And when I do see that, oh yeah, you know, I should let this person know X, Y, and Z, I make sure to tell the truth as compassionately as possible. You know, you don't want to like, like just bombard someone and throw something on someone really heavily, especially if it's someone you love, but to be able to meet them where they're at. And I think that's one of the, the biggest aspects of compassion is, you know, trying to meet someone where they're at can be incredibly difficult, but it's one of the most effective ways to hold their hand and bring them forward and help them see a new perspective that can help both of you have a better relationship, especially on the one-on-one level.
0: I love that you talked about checking yourself first though,
10: before, Totally, right? totally. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> checking what are my intentions here? What am I actually trying to achieve here? Is this for them or is this for me? Mm-hmm. And I think there's also an aspect of, I can't meet people where they're at if I'm not with me where I'm at right now.
10: Totally. Yep. Mm.
0: Yep. So you, you've you talked about the fact that you're a meditator, not a meditation teacher. I want to talk about why that's so important for you to make that distinction and also your journey in being a meditator. In other interviews, I've heard you talk about your teacher, S.N. Goenka. That's right. Yeah. And sort of the Vipassana meditations that you've been doing, the fact that you meditate for 2 hours every single day <laughs> at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. That's right. Yeah. Tell us about that. I'm so fascinated.
10: Yeah. I think it's another story that feels I can't quite pinpoint the actual source of like where this feeling came from because I I honestly like I I've, I've heard about meditation my whole life just like everybody else. You know, it's always mm-hmm. there in the background. Someone's talking about it, but it wasn't until one of my friends one of my really good friends, one of my best friends, he was traveling and he ended up being told about it when he was in India. This really nice family told him about it and he ended up signing up. And this was someone that I had spent a lot of time with, done a lot of stupid stuff with. <laughs> and he you know, he writes me this email and he's like, to me and a few other friends, and he just talks about love and compassion and goodwill over and over in the email. Mm. And I was so shocked by what he was saying. And when he, when he described the situation, you know, 10 days of silence, meditating, you're meditating the whole day, every day when you're there. And he was describing how much he felt better and how much he had gotten and how he felt like he found his, own, his path. I knew from that moment, I was like, whatever he did, you know, I don't even get what he did, but I need to try it for myself because that sounds right up my alley.
0: Hmm. And can I ask, where were you in your journey at that time? Like between kind of doing the radical honesty and sort of, you know, changing your habits, between that and starting the meditation, where were you at? Yeah,
10: I was, I would say about eight months after I started oh wow. Like radical honesty and positive habit building. Look at that. Yeah. So it was really yeah. the perfect time where I had become kind of like mentally strong enough and had spent a lot of time building my self-awareness and just like building myself up from the ground up. And I knew that I was getting a lot from what I was doing, but I I was ready to take a a deeper step and it just connected so well inside of me that I signed up immediately after he told me about it. And I I ended up doing my first course the summer of 2012, which is basically Mm. almost exactly like a year after I had my rock bottom moment.
0: That's it for this first bonus end-of-year episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. We'll be back very soon with our final bonus episode for the year. I hope you've enjoyed taking this beautiful trip down memory lane with the amazing guests we've had this year and the good ancestor wisdom they've each offered us. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Layla Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.